Thanks. All right, who here has a favorite genre, a type of story, either in books or in movies? Like you go to the library, you know what you're gonna walk out with most likely. You go onto Disney Plus, you go onto Netflix, you go onto whatever, you're looking for a movie, you know what you're gonna get. Who has a favorite genre? Yeah, Taylor, what's yours? Oh, but you raised your hand, too, too bad. Intense and fast for action movies? Okay, Sage? True crime. True crime, ooh, true crime. That is a popular one right now. Like I, I was hearing just this week how like the number one podcast going on right now is uh, true crime stuff. People just love hearing grisly murders for some reason. It, it's, it's like popcorn, you just can't stop. Who else? Yeah. Fantasy adventure. Fantasy adventure, very good. Yes. Ooh, historical fiction. I, I got good news for you tonight. We are we're gonna be doing some historical stuff tonight. Yeah, Alejandro. I love Hallmark. Hallmark, oh <laughs> the romance. You know, she's with the wrong guy at the beginning. By the end of the movie, she's gonna be with Mr. Wright. It's pretty formulaic, third act conflict. Yeah. We, we know. Yes, Elizabeth. Dragons. Dragons? Dragons and horses. Okay. Yeah, how to train your dragon. I love how to train your dragon. Um this, oh, what was that classic? It doesn't matter what it was. There was another great, great dragon movie back in the day. What, one more. What, what do you got here? Uh, anything with animals. Anything with animals. All right. Now, for me, I love, absolutely love, uh, wuxia comedy films. Uh, wuxia is the kung fu fantasy fighting. And I love it when they take that genre and make it a comedy. Uh, it, it's just guaranteed to be golden. Uh, I also love, absolutely love, war movies. It's in like a bridge over the River Kwai. Uh, oh, there, there was a very famous movie um, and they remade re into a Star Trek episode. Uh, what Lies the Enemy Beneath, I think it was. Uh, great, great war movie. But uh, regardless, let's imagine you're watching your favorite movie. Let's say Star Wars. And you have this great scene and they just finished fighting with the lightsabers. He just, he just got it for the first time. He's learned how to use it. And then the next scene is Mr. Darcy in the middle of Victorian England having tea and crumpets. And you might sit there and go, what? What's going on? This, this makes no sense whatsoever. And then the scene goes back to Star Wars and, and everyone then leaves the theater. I don't get what's going on. People go to the internet. This scene makes no sense. English teachers make you write long, boring essays about the juxtaposition of Victorian England against the high sci-fi uh, sci of Star Wars. And I, I promise you this from personal experience. When you are given an assignment that says, what's the connection here? They don't like it when you say there is none. And it doesn't matter how well you wrote there is none. They don't like it. Uh, well, tonight... We're going to be going over Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. And this is the death of John the Baptist. And at first glance, you might get the idea that this is a random historical side note, uh, much like just haphazardly thrown in, kind of like uh, Victorian England in the middle of a Star Wars film. I mean, we've been reading about Jesus' ministry. We've been reading about the miracles he's performed. Uh, the messages he's taught, the people he's healed, and the opposition he's faced from various groups. And then we have the death of John the Baptist. And then after this, we're going to launch right back in to the miracles Jesus did, his ministries, and his interacting with the religious leaders. But between it, you just have this random, what seems like a random story about John the Baptist dying. And likewise, in the parallel accounts of this, in Mark and Luke, it seems like it's just kind of randomly inserted. Like there's this thing happening historically, so we kind of need to make a footnote about it and then get on with the rest of the gospel account. So I have to ask you, do you think it's possible that God didn't know how to fit this event in and just inspired it to be randomly written? Oh, I'm sorry, there's some whispers, what? No, say it with confidence, no! I mean, obviously God makes no mistakes whatsoever. Uh, he's the one who put it into our hearts and our minds what good writing is. I think God knows how to write out what he wants written. So tell me, what is the theme of Matthew? Who remembers? Yes. Jesus as king. Jesus as king, the Messiah as king. Uh, and 
as we've been going through, we, we've been watching Israel's rejection of the Messiah as their king, a rejection that's ultimately going to lead to his crucifixion. And it's really fascinating. Like, I highly encourage y'all to read on from this point. Like, y'all don't have to wait every week for us to, uh, to go to the next part of Matthew. Y'all can read it on your own. And it's so amazing as you read through it, you're going to see how from this point on, the Israelites, they like Jesus for healing them. They like Jesus for feeding him and for meeting their immediate material needs. But they increasingly don't like the messages that he's giving them about him being the Messiah, him being the king. And that's exactly what we're going to see tonight. So if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Matthew 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. Reading from God's word, it says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So I've titled tonight's lesson, The Fearful, the Furious, and the Faithful. And the main point of this passage is going to be the wrong way and the right way to respond to the gospel in the midst of adversity. Now, up till now, over the past few chapters, we've been talking about the opposition of Jesus. Who have we seen rejecting Christ over these past few chapters? Just name a group. There's a lot of them. Yes. Pharisees. What's that? Pharisees. Yeah, the Pharisees. We've seen him, them reject Christ. Who else? The common people. The common people. Absolutely. Anyone else? A little bonus if no one else wants to raise their hand. Go ahead, Ian. The scribes, yeah, we've seen the Pharisees, we've seen the scribes, we've seen the common people, uh, the towns where he performed most of his miracles, yes. Did his I just hear? Family his, at the time. his family even at the time, yes. His family came, and the people from his hometown, all of them, rejected Jesus. So far from being a random side story, I hope that you're already starting to see that uh, this fits perfectly in with the continuing rejection of the Messiah as the king, uh, which, just to be clear, is going to be the wrong way to respond to the gospel in the midst of adversity. So there are three main individuals we read about in this passage. Uh, each of them have allowed their lives to be fundamentally shaped and influenced by uh, very different emotions. Uh, one has allowed fear to shape their lives. One has allowed fury to shape their lives. And one has allowed faithfulness, faithfulness to shape their lives. So I want to start the evening by looking at the absolute wrong way to respond to the gospel uh, and look at the one uh, look at the one whose life has been shaped by fear and this is Herod the Tetrarch in verse 2 we see that when he hears about the amazing miracles that Jesus is doing his response is to say that Jesus is a resurrected John the Baptist which prompts a, a short flashback explaining how it came to be that John the Baptist even died now there are a lot of background questions that just this little beginning thing kind of makes me start thinking about. Uh, because I also like to think about historical stuff, Abby. Uh, that, that's, a, that's really a passion of mine. What, what happened in the past? Like, how did we get to where we are today? What were the series of events that got, that got us here? Uh, so when I read a passage like this, I'm wondering, like, which Herod is this actually talking about? Because there's a lot more than one Herod in the New Testament. Uh, what was the big deal about John saying it was wrong to marry Herodias. And what, what about the rest? What about the execution? Was this legal? Like, were they al allowed to do this? Now, I do hope you like history because tonight we're going to be going over a fair bit of it. 
so, I, so that hopefully we can both get a better understanding of why John was arrested and why Herod had this extremely fearful response. So let's start by answering the question, which Herod is this passage referencing? Uh, it lists him as Herod the Tetrarch in this passage. Other passages, some parallel accounts refer to him as King Herod. Uh, however, at this point in time, there's actually two Herod the Tetrarchs in the New Testament. Uh, and in total, we actually read about six unique individuals whose name are simply Herod. Uh, some of them get the title like the Great, the Tetrarch, uh, but mainly it's Herod. Uh, two of them are mentioned in Acts, and four of them are mentioned here in the Gospels. Now, the two Herods and Acts, they, they don't factor into today's passage. But I, I just want you to be aware of them, because being aware of them, it really highlights just how messed up the Herodian family was, uh, how fundamentally wicked they were. So first up, you have uh, Herod Agrippa I and Herod Agrippa II. Which, there we go, Herod Agrippa II, kind of low on the screen there. Hopefully y'all guys can see that. I apologize if it's just a little bit too small. Herod has a big family, so I had to fit things in a little bit. So Herod Agrippa I was the brother of Herodias. That is the woman that we read about in tonight's passage, the one who wanted John the Baptist dead. Uh, and he, Herod Agrippa, is the one who kills the Apostle James. He imprisons Peter. And he is the Herod that is ruling in Acts chapter 12. This is the event where you see Herod come before the people of Tyre and Sidon, or actually they come before him, and they're in trouble. And so as he's giving this proclamation, they kind of want to ingratiate themselves to him. And so they start chanting, the voice of a God, not of a man. And the Bible tells us that he failed to give God glory. And so God sent an angel to immediately strike him, and he was eaten by worms and died. Uh, so that is Herod Agrippa I. His son, Herod Agrippa II, uh, is the one who Paul stands before at the end of Acts and has his trial before him. So these are the two Herods we see in Acts. Uh, let's look at the Herods in the Gospels. And I know if you don't like history much, this might seem kind of pointless. Like you might be sitting there going, I thought, I, was, I thought it was summer, Matt. I thought we were done with school. But I promise you, there is a point. Like I'm not just telling you history because I enjoy history. There is a point to understanding the family tree and the events surrounding the Herodian family. Uh, so when Christ was born, the first person we are introduced to is Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was a truly powerful king. Uh, he ruled over Judea, and he himself was subservient to Rome. His father, Antipater, which uh, that's my best Texan pronunciation. It, that's probably not at all how you do it, but his father, Antipater, uh, he was an Edomite. He used his wealth and influence to gain massive authority to the point that Rome established him uh, as king of this area, which established the Herodian dynasty. Now, Herod the Great was initially married to the daughter of a noble from an Arab kingdom of uh, Nabataean. But he divorced her, and he married the woman up on the screen there, which is, again in Texan, Marimani. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I, I don't know how to pronounce this stuff. Uh, but... She was a princess from the disposed Jewish kingdom or Jewish noble line of the Maccabees, which anyone familiar with the name Maccabees? Comes up once or twice in history. Kind of, yeah. I know the story, but I'm not going to explain it. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, ditto. I know the story. I'm not going to explain it too much. The important detail is this was a very prominent noble family. Uh, they are the ones who staged a revolt against the Greeks, uh, technically, it was the Seleucid Empire, but it was, they were subservient to Greek. And as part of this revolt, they cleansed the temple for eight days. And every year, in remembrance of that eight-day cleansing, we have the modern uh, holiday of Hanukkah. So marrying her was a very shrewd political move on Herod the Great's part. Uh, he, although, although it was shrewd, he also, you know, historians believe that he did indeed love her uh, very much. Now, like his father, Antipater, Herod the Great observed Jewish customs, and he actually considered himself to be a follower of Judaism. However, because his father was an Edomite, he was always seen as a foreigner and was at constant conflict with the, uh, the Pharisees. Herod the Great, you know, 
we see him in the New Testament and we know him for the evil things he did. Uh, but in history at large, he's known for several positive things. He was known for making aqueducts. He's the one who built the temple in Jerusalem that we see Jesus going to throughout his life. The one that uh, the Pharisees, despite their, their hatred of him and the conflict with him, they loved it so much. The great temple that Herod built. Um, that said, he also suffered from extreme paranoia. Like his, his sister made the most of this paranoia and convinced them that his wife, uh, Marimani, was cheating on him. And this led him to kill her, her brother, two of her sons, and a host of other people, uh, his, including his own firstborn. And his own paranoia and the constant provocation of his sister is what set the stage for what we see at the beginning of the Gospels where he is so obsessed with holding on to power for himself that when he hears that there was another king born, he goes out and he slaughters all the infants in Bethlehem. And he doesn't just do it to the infants in Bethlehem. He actually slaughters the infants in his own household. Like he was so obsessed and so stirred up by his paranoia and the constant provocations of his sister. Um, now at his death, he changed his will like, so many times. It's crazy. The, this, this guy was an, a nutter at the end of his life. Uh, but he ultimately gave control of his kingdom to the other three Herods we see in the Gospels. And that is uh, specifically Herod Archelius, and he got half the kingdom. And then also there was uh, Herod Philip and Herod Antipas. Now Herod Archelius, he ruled over Judea and Samaria, and those were the areas that surrounded or were near Jerusalem. And he was just as bad as his dad was. He definitely learned everything that his dad had to teach him. And this is why when Joseph comes back from Egypt, he doesn't go to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem. He says, I'm going to stay far away from that family. And he instead goes and he settles in Nazareth. Uh, and it, in fact, uh, Archelius was so bad that even the Roman government finally had to say, this is too much. Like he ruled for 10 years and they got so many complaints from uh, the Jewish people. They said, you're out. And that's why you don't see a Herod ruling over the trial at Jesus at the very beginning. Like by, by happenstance, there was a Herod there, and we'll talk about him in a second. But he was just there for the Passover, observing the customs. Uh, the Herod that should have been there was Achilles, but he was disposed, so instead Pilate was one put in control of this region. Uh, and, and also, this, this swapping of getting rid of Herod and putting in Pilate, that might explain why there was tension we're told about between Pilate and Antipa. I mean, if my brother had been kicked out, I think I'd be a little mad at his, the guy who replaced him too. <laughs> like, can you imagine that? Like, oh, we got to work together, but my brother was fired so that you could have the position. I I'd be a little standoffish too. Yes, Ian? I think that Herod's degrades wife for being married, I mean, because you got M-A-R-I, that'd be married, A-M-N-E, that'd be married, so marry me, so she's still Marry me? Marry me. Oh, how to pronounce it? Yes. Oh, okay. Hey. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So one thing my dad taught me, he said, Matthew, most people don't know how to pronounce the names in the Bible. Like you, you got some pastors and listen to how they do it to learn, but most people don't know. So you say it with confidence and people go, oh, you, you know how to, how to say it. Uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad you have more insight into it than I do. Uh, <laughs> Okay, finally, uh, or our next I should say, we have Herod Philip, and he's the one over there on the left. And notice that each one of these people had different moms. Uh, some of the moms, we don't know who they were. Some of the moms, uh, we did know who they were, but I, I didn't have time to, to fully research and understand as I went along and, and prepared this. But each one of them were half-brothers to each other. Uh, so Herod Philip was also on the Tetrarchs. So you had Herod Achilles, and he was seemed to be the best. He got half the kingdom. And then the other two brothers each got one quarter. So Philip got one quarter of Herod the Great's kingdom. And initially, he was married to Herodias, and they had a daughter. Now, uh, once Antipas, uh, Antipas showed up, Herodias and Philip got divorced. Uh, in fact, Herodias and um, Antipa 
both divorced their spouses so they could marry one another. And as a result, this happened, and Antipa and Herodias had a daughter of their own. And Philip thought she was so good-looking that he ended up marrying his niece. And I want you guys to understand, this is how messed up this family is. So, so Herodias was already his niece, or technically his half-niece. So he divorces his half-niece. His brother marries his half-niece, who is also his half-brother's wife. They have a child, and Philip marries both his niece and his grandniece. That's how this family tree works out. Uh, this was a... And this is why I wrote it down. Like, I was, I, was, I was writing this out. I said, there's no way even me listening back later would be able to understand this unless I had this PowerPoint up here. This is the simplified version, guys. <laughs> and one last character we do need to talk about uh, is Herodias. Well, she doesn't have the name Herod. She is part of the Herod household line. Uh, and she, well, she fully adopted her family's teachings. Um, so you see, she was both the niece uh, to both her first husband and her second husband. And her dad was one of the th sons that Herod had put to death. So, guys, this was, this was just a wicked family, uh, through and through. Uh, their marriages were seen obscene, even from a secular standpoint. I like the way that uh, one commentator puts him. Uh, the commentator's name was James Vernon McGee. I don't know if you ever heard of him. But he is just a Southern Baptist kind of pastor. Uh, he is not going to give you the deep, deep, like this Greek word means this. He's the sort of guy you sit down to and he just talks to you about the Bible. I love the way he describes the Herodian family. He says the Herodians were like a 1920s mobster family. They used their wealth and their cruelty to rise to power. And once in power, their wickedness only increased. Their wickedness, I'm going to leave this up here for a while, but unfortunately, so this is so complicated, this is where the PowerPoint ends, guys. <laughs> You're just going to have to take notes for the rest of the time. Um, but their wickedness impacted not just their own family. I mean, we've already talked about how Herod the Great, he murdered his own children. Uh, he murdered his spouses. He murdered his spouse's children that weren't his. Uh, he murdered so many people. And people he didn't murder, he exiled. There were political intrigues. There were banishments. There's murder. It didn't just impact their own family. It impacted the, the whole world at large, guys. And, and that's why we've been going over this. Because their wickedness is exactly the framework that sets up what we see in this chapter. Uh, there's obviously the emphasis that Herod the Great carried out in Bethlehem. But the marriage of Herod Antipa to uh, Herodias actually destabilized this entire region for over a decade. So this actually leads me to the next question I had, which was, what's the big deal about John saying it's not okay for you to marry her? I mean, even the secular people were like, this is wrong. Like, that's messed up. You married your niece slash grandniece slash technically kind of stepdaughter because it was the daughter of your ex-wife, which I mean, at that point, there's really no more legal binds. But I mean, they, there's still some weird stuff going on that she can factor into three different family relations. Even the secular people thought this was gross. So why is it that John saying it was somehow so offensive to the Herodian family, uh, specifically to Antipa and Herodias? Well, Herod Antipa's wife, his first wife, was the daughter of King Eretus IV of Nabita. And this is the same Nabita that his, his father, excuse me, his grandfather had, uh, had a wife from, and he divorced her to, to marry, uh, marry me? Is, is, is that marry me? Marry me? There we go. Thank you, Ian. Marry me. Uh, so the same kingdom. It, it was a kingdom that was just south of Judea. It was, it's what we would call the northwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula, it's the farthest, most west you can go in Egypt today. Uh, it was that region right there. And once he divorced her, she went back home to daddy. And daddy was not pleased with the way that the Herodians, and specifically Antipa, had treated his daughter. And he used this as a reason to declare war on 
Antipa, not the whole region, but specifically Antipa. And this was a war that he'd actually go on to lose. Uh, but at this time, it would have just been starting. If, or if not starting, there would have been rumors about it starting because of what Antipa and Herodias did together. So imagine this, Herod Antipa comes back home with his brother's wife, now his wife. He divorces his current wife. She goes back home. Her father's beginning to talk about war. And you have this guy who lives on the outskirts of your territory that the masses are flocking to, who is telling them that Herod Antipa, that you are living in sin. And maybe, maybe you sit there and you wonder, does this guy have any connections to these zealots I've been hearing about? This religious or this political movement that's trying to overthrow Rome, is he trying to work up an army against me? Or even worse, maybe he's just trying to get enough people mad at me so that I'll get deposed the same way my brother was deposed 15, 20 years ago at this point. Now in Mark's account, uh, in chapter 6, verse 20, we read that one of the reasons Herod definitely feared John. Like, he, he might have feared him for all these political reasons. And there's some extra-biblical accounts that does talk about there's some political intrigue that may have been there that he was worried about. But we know from a biblical perspective that one of the reasons Herod definitely feared John was because John was a righteous man. It says that in, in Mark 6, verse 20. He was a righteous and holy man. And it may seem to be kind of weird to be afraid of someone who's righteous and holy. Like, like if I'm a wicked sinner, what do I care if someone is righteous. Like, what are they going to do? I'm going to go out and I'm going to get them killed. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to go out and I'm going to take away their livelihood because I'm wicked. What do I care about a righteous, holy man? But if you look at the news today, you're going to find that politicians, leaders in general, wicked, wicked people, they live in absolute fear of anyone who is even righteous enough to just tell the truth. Like, they don't have to be a truly righteous person. They just have to be good enough to tell the truth once. And they absolutely fear that kind of person. And likewise, Herod is afraid. Uh, from the accounts of him we see in the scriptures, and, and from what I've read about him uh, over the past couple of weeks preparing for this, I'd have to describe him as a politically weak man who desperately wanted power and the praise of his contemporaries. And like most weak men who are put in that position of power, when his sin was confronted by the gospel, he tried to use force to silence it because he lacked the ability to deal with it in a strong manner. Notice in verses 4 and 5, it says, John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he, that's Herod Antipa, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Look, Herod feared John possibly as a political rival, definitely as a righteous man, and he wanted to kill him, absolutely wanted to kill him. But Herod was more afraid of the people at large, of the masses. If he killed John, he was afraid, would they stage a revolt? Uh, would they just complain and get him removed from power? Uh, but more than the people, more than John, Herod was afraid of losing face, of losing credibility among his political rivals. Uh, look at verse 9. We're skipping over a little bit here, so it's a quick summary. Remember that Herod's holding a birthday banquet for himself. And during this, he has his grandniece slash stepdaughter dance for him and his guests. And, and let me not be around the bush here. Herod's grandniece was probably a young to middle-aged teenager. We're talking about 12, 13, 14 years old. And when it says she danced for him, uh, based on the culture of the time, this was most likely a sexually provocative dance that she went out and did for her granduncle slash stepfather and his dinner guests or his birthday banquet guests. This scene is just further highlighting the depravity that the Herodian family uh, had. And after this dance, Herod wants to impress his guests. Now, is Herod a king? No, Herod isn't a king, but he wants everyone to look at him and be impressed by him. So he makes this grandiose promise. He says, I promise to give you anything because you dance so well. Ask it of me, anything. Now, Mark 6, it goes on and it says 
the exact promise he says is, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. But he's not a king. He doesn't have a square foot of his kingdom to give away. He has no kingdom. But he wants the people to be in awe of him and this grandiose oath that he gives. So he makes this promise. And after talking to her mom, his stepdaughter slash grandniece asks for the head of John the Baptist. And here we are at verse 9. It says, And the king, that's Herod Antipa, was sorry because of his oath and his guests he commanded. Uh, and Excuse me. He was sorry, but because of his oath and his guests he commanded to be given. Now, Herod Antipa could have backed out of his promise. Like, he could have been like, I'm not doing that. He could have even said, no, I promised to give you a gift. I didn't promise to commit a crime. But he is so afraid to lose any amount of face with his political contemporaries that he immediately had John the Baptist killed. Now, it's an action that we're told that he was sorry about. Uh, and in Mark 6, 26, we're told that he wasn't just sorry, but he was exceedingly sorry. Now, maybe your transli translation says he was deeply grieved. And, and honestly, I do think that's the better translation because we see no signs of repentance from Herod Antipa in this, in this passage. Uh, we see no sign of repentance from him secularly in, in extra-biblical sources. We see no sign of repentance beyond this passage. In the flashback he's giving, where it says, oh, it's John the Baptist, we don't see him being, like, repentive of what he did. We just see him being deeply grieved that he did. Now, now do you get the difference I'm talking about here? Like, to, to consider a, a completely hypothetical example. Let's say you're having a fight with your sibling. I know, I know, no one in here, right? No, no one in here whatsoever. Uh, just a bunch of only children in here, I'm, I'm sure. But just imagine for a second, you're having a fight uh, with your sibling. Or maybe you've mouthed off to your parents one too many times. And their response is to ground you in some way. Maybe you're not allowed to go to the movies. Uh, maybe they take away your phone. Uh, maybe they don't let you be on social media for a while. Whatever is hip right now. I think it's MySpace is pretty popular. Uh. <laughs> oh, what's MySpace? I knew there'd be someone. I knew there'd be someone who, uh, who doesn't know what MySpace is. Regardless of what the punishment is, the point is you are punished by your parents. Now, as you sit in your room fuming about how unfair this punishment is, and about how it's really your sibling's fault. I mean, if they had been there five seconds sooner, they'd be on your side. But no, they always take your sibling's side. It's not fair. I think it's safe to say that you might feel deeply grieved in that moment, don't you? But are you deeply repentant in that moment? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know your heart. But just for the sake of argument, let's say that you're more like fuming. You can see how easy it is to take deep grief about a punishment and you push that inward. And you let that grief at the punishment uh, just turn into a festering anger. And rather than repenting, you point the blame instead of inward, you point it outward. It's everyone else's fault around me. I'm the victim. You moan and you cry about how unfair the situation is uh, instead of taking responsibility. And that's the difference between repentance and just being deeply grieved about a punishment. Uh, with repentance, you point the blame inward. You recognize the, the places where you were at fault and you allow that recognition to have an outward change in your life. And as you can see with Herod, uh, this isn't something just kids or young adults do. Uh, we, we do it too. I do it too. I mean, don't, don't get us wrong. It's not something that's going to magically go away. Uh, I mean, this, this goes all the way back to the Garden of, Adam, uh, of Eve with Adam and Eve, right? I mean, what did Adam do when God said, did you eat the fruit? He said, oh, it was Eve. What did Eve do? Oh, it was a snake. We, we are constantly taking our grief and putting it inward and taking the blame and, and putting it outward. And this is the first wrong reaction to the gospel uh, in light of adversity. It's one of being too afraid to do the things you know you should do. 
Herod knew what he did was wrong. He had guilt about it. Uh, in the account of, of Mark, we see that people offer three explanations how, what could be going on here. It could be John raised from the dead. It could be a prophet of old. It could be Elijah. And Herod insists this is John the Baptist because he knew what he had done was wrong. The second wrong response is one of fury. Now, thankfully, uh, I'll just close that down. Thankfully, we don't need to go over uh, a lot of background to understand what's going on with the one who was in fury. This was Herodias. We've already done all the legwork explaining what's going on with uh, Herod Antipa. But Herodias uh, lived in fury. Look at how she is described as responding to the gospel. In Mark 14, 3, or excuse me, in Matthew 14, 3, in Mark 6, 17, it says that Herod had put John in jail specifically at the prompting of his wife, Herodias. Uh, in fact, Mark 6, 19 says that Herodias held a deep grudge against John the Baptist, but unlike her husband, or like her husband, she wanted him dead. Unlike her husband, uh, Herodias was a strong and cruel woman. While Antipa was weak and fearful, she was strong and cruel. And the first moment she got, she took advantage of it to have John killed. When presented with the gospel in the face of adversity, her response was that of fury against God. And keep in mind, when I say adversity, uh, Herodias, like she wasn't facing persecution. Uh, her adversity in her situation was facing the bare minimum pushback of someone saying, you know what, uh, you're, kind of, you're in sin. Like that was her persecution. Someone just saying, what you're doing is wrong. She lived in a palace. I mean, she had people to wait on her. She, she wasn't facing persecution the way you and I, or adversity the way you and I would consider it. Uh, but even that small, small pushback caused her to lash out in anger that someone would dare to say uh, she didn't have the right to do whatever made her happy, whatever made her feel good. She was fully ready to rail and shake her fist against God. So these two responses of Herod Antipa and Herodias, they remind me of the account of Paul and Barnabas in Acts. Uh, remember, they, they went to Lystra because, or excuse me, it reminds me of the account of Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. They had to flee from Iconium because the people there were jealous of their teaching and they were ready to kill them. And so in the middle of the night, they, they have to get out of town. They say, hey, we see this plot. We're going to move along. So they go to uh, the cities of Lyconia. And at first things go, well, they don't look good. Uh, but they're not trying to be killed either. The people, they see him heal someone and they're convinced he's a, a deity, that both of them are deities. And so they're just barely able to restrain the people from worshiping them. So it wasn't a good, good result, but at least they're not trying to be killed. But the people uh, from Iconium come, and they stir up the people of, or excuse me, the, the people come from Iconium, they stir up the people of Lyconia to get Paul stoned and left for dead. Herod was unwilling to repent, feeling the loss of man's favor. A lot like the, the people of Lyconia, sorry, the names are so similar, my brain's swapping them around, I apologize. Uh, but Herod was fearful. He, he didn't want to lose man's favor, favor. So like the people of Lyconia, he just was kind of neutral for them. But Herod, uh, Herodias, like the people of Iconium, she was ready to be angry. And she went and she got him worked up like the people of Iconia. These are two very wrong ways to respond to the gospel of Christ. However, there is one last prominent figure in this passage, and that is John the Baptist. In his actions, we see the right way to respond to the gospel, as well as the right, or, uh, the right way to respond to political leaders sinning. So first we see that John, he addresses the sin of Herodias and, and Antipa. Like he does not leave it alone. While at the same time, while he's confronting it, what he doesn't do is he doesn't call for a political revolution. Uh, look at Matthew 14, verses 3 and 4. It says, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, 
because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Notice that what John doesn't do is he doesn't try to rile up the masses. He doesn't try to say, hey, we need to go and impeach this wicked ruler. I mean, just look at the people he hangs out with. Look at his family. His granddad murdered all the Jewish babies or all the infants in Bethlehem. I mean, they're not just sinning a little bit. These are wicked people. He didn't do that. Uh, he also didn't try to get a letter campaign going to write to the, the Roman government to have him disposed. Those are things he didn't do. Instead, he directly addresses the sin. And what's interesting is the way it's worded, it's like there's a little implication that he was saying this directly to Herod. Now, it could just be that, you know, he was directing it to him as he was teaching the people. He said, hey, this is sin. Uh, but just the wording of it, it leaves open enough in my mind to, uh, to kind of imply that he, somehow he had a communication line with Herod. And he was telling Herod directly, what you're doing is wrong. Look at verse 4. It says, John had been saying to him. He's not saying this to the people. Uh, he's not saying this to other politicians. It kind of seems like John was saying this directly to Herod. Now, from a modern perspective, I don't think this means that we need to turn a blind eye to the sin of our politicians and our leaders. Like, we exist in kind of a, a really weird place here in America where we have this system where we get to elect the people in charge and we get to say, hey, this is why I'm for this guy. This is why I'm against that guy. It's kind of a weird thing, historically speaking. Usually it was the guy who had the biggest army, and that was it. But I don't think we turn a blind eye to the sin of our politicians. And we don't turn a blind eye if we can't direct them or can't confront them directly the way it seems like maybe John did. And it certainly doesn't mean that we see flagrant sin and we never address it as a body of believers. Like we're supposed, we're supposed to be engaged with the world around us. And part of that is we're going to say, hey, this leader is doing something wrong. But the way we see John doing it here in Matthew 14, it's setting the standard for how we need to do it. We don't need to be sitting around gossiping with each other, slandering our leaders, saying, can you believe the latest thing Biden did? Can you believe the latest thing Mitch McConnell did? Oh, it's so sinful. It's so wrong. And you just, you just kvetch about it. Uh, that, that's not what we need to be doing. Instead, he directly addresses the sin. Uh, and notice that John doesn't stop witnessing just because he's in jail. Uh, look again at Mark, uh, Mark 6.20, or I, I say look again, but in Mark 6, verse 20, after John's arrested, we, we read that Herod actually went and gladly spoke with John. Like they had a continuing dialogue while he was in jail. And what's interesting is he doesn't repent, but it says he was glad to do it. It's just that he was perplexed when he left it literally says he, he was very perplexed about their interactions. And, and guys, this, the response that John had, is the absolute correct response to the gospel. Herodias and John, they really represent two radically opposed responses to the gospel. Uh, where Herodias was furious that she was mildly inconvenienced, that someone had the audacity to say, what you're doing is against God's law. John was put in jail and continued to faithfully preach the word of God, even in the face of death. Now, we spent so much time focusing on the wickedness of the Herodians because, I mean, it was important for this passage. It explains the vile depravity of this family, of why John was such of a threat to them, and how petty they were. They, they committed mass murder because of perceived slights. Despite the fact that even just one of those murders, it, it was actually illegal. They didn't have the authority to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. They didn't have the authority to put John to the death. Uh, he had done nothing. Like, there had to be a trial. There was a whole Roman legal system, and they just bypassed it. But I want to briefly look at the life of John the Baptist as we close, so we can see the vivid contrast that exists between a life that lives in opposition to God versus a life that lives in submission to God, in faithful obedience to God. 
Just think about his life for a minute. John the Baptist, his birth was heralded by the angel Gabriel. Remember the interaction he had with Zechariah? And Zechariah goes, I, how do I know you're telling me the truth? And Gabriel's response, it might seem a little prideful if I were to say this, but understand it's not prideful. Like, Gabriel wasn't sinning by saying this. He said, I stand in the presence of God. And he came to tell uh, Zacharias about this upcoming birth. He said he would be uh, born in the power of Elijah. And he was conceived, John the Baptist was conceived in miraculous circumstances. It wasn't a virgin birth, mind you. But Zechariah and uh, his wife were well past childbearing ages. They were old. And even in the womb, John knew when he was in the presence of the Messiah and he leapt for joy. Now, like Samson, John the Baptist lived under a Nazarite vow, but unlike Samson, he actually kept it. Uh, he avoided the strong drink. He, he avoided wine. And John was a truly humble man. I mean, despite the fact that both Jesus and Gabriel said that he comes in the spirit of Elijah, he was unwilling to take that mantle for himself. He recognized that this was an important thing, and when people asked him, he said, no, no, that, that can't be me. And even though Gabriel had said it, even though Jesus later confirmed it, uh, when Christ came to be baptized, John was so humble, he said, no, this is wrong. Like, I, I shouldn't be doing this. You're, you're greater than I am. I, I should be baptized by you. And he had a pretty big following at this point. But he was also obedient. When Jesus said, no, you need to do it, he did it. When John's disciples began to lead to follow Christ, uh, again, he displayed how humble he was, stating that his own ministry, it needed to decrease. He said, I'm the voice of a, in the wilderness, preparing the way. Like, he has to increase. That's the point. But he was also just a man. Think for a minute. He's in prison. He's aware that this is not going well for him. He knows Herod wants him dead, but is afraid. He knows Herodias also wants him dead, but isn't afraid. And he's continuing to preach the word, and he's hearing the reports of Jesus, and he gets a little scared. He says, are you really the Messiah? Like the things Jesus is doing, it concerned him because it wasn't meshing up with his own vision, much like the disciples that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Jesus wasn't doing the things they thought the Messiah was going to do. And so he was scared. He said, am I pursuing a false religion? Did I mess up? And Jesus comforts him. He encourages him. He, said, he doesn't say, yes, I'm the Messiah. Instead, he says, tell him the things the scriptures said. I'm healing. I'm teaching. And that was all that John needed because John knew the scriptures, and he knew that Jesus was fulfilling exactly what the Messiah was going to fulfill. And having put those doubts to rest, John faithfully preached the gospel at the cost of his very own life. Young men and women, this, this passage that we've read tonight, it's not some random story wedged between other things going on. Uh, just two weeks ago, Alejandro talked about the man who was diligently searching for the pearl and he finds a pearl of such surpassing value that he gives up everything he has to buy it. That's exactly what John does. He recognized that the kingdom of heaven was worth everything he had, even his own life, and gleefully, joyfully, faithfully preached the gospel. For several months now, we've been talking about how Jesus has been facing continuing rejection as the Messiah. Like Herod, the people loved hearing those nice little bits from Jesus. They liked hearing how Oh, the, the meek will inherit the earth? All right, that's me. Awesome. They liked, they liked being fed, as we're going to see next week. They liked all those healings. They were sick. They liked that Jesus healed them, but they didn't like his message. They didn't like the part where he said that he was the Messiah, and this is what it's going to look like. Some people responded like Herodias. Uh, or excuse me, some people, they responded like Herod, like, like they soiled with weeds and rocks. They heard the gospel message, but they were fearful. They were worried what people would say. The rich young man who came to Jesus, he, he was fearful about losing all his money. And they allowed that gospel to be uh, snuffed out. Some people were like Herodias, like that hard packed soil. Oh, they're, they're just ready to be furious. They're ready to shake their fists. They're ready to rail against God and his authority. What are you? When it comes to standing firm in the gospel, where do you actually stand? Are you fearful of what people might say if you don't support their sin? Like I say, there's a lot of pressure on us right now. 
especially y'all in school right now, and as you go to college, I mean, that is a wicked place. It, it, even the Christian colleges, I went to a Christian college. They were very anti-God at my college. They taught, nope, the Genesis account of creation, false, absolutely false. Flood, I don't think so. You try to take a stance for the Bible, you were not very, uh, very ingratiated to your teachers. Or are you furious that you aren't the one in charge of morality in your own life? Or do you respond with consistent faithfulness to the gospel, even in the midst of persecution? I do pray it's the latter. And if there's anyone here tonight who recognizes that, you know, they're responding in fear, they're responding in fury against God, and you want to change that, come talk to us, guys. I mean, we're here for this. If you're not comfortable talking to us, and I get that, you know, it's a big group. Go talk to your parents. Your parents are here to, to talk to you too. They'd love to talk to you about this. Just don't be afraid to do it. Don't let the fear of how people might respond to you making that repentance keep you from repenting. Guys, everyone here who is a Christian will rejoice at receiving a brother and sister in Christ. Your parents will rejoice. Absolutely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to learn more about you. We thank you for the gift you've given us to us in the scriptures and the examples of godly men and women faithfully serving you, even to death. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here tonight who is currently living under your wrath, that they would turn away from their sins to your glorious light. I pray that you would be transforming that hard-packed, stony soil into good, fertile ground, that you'd be changing that tear into a beautiful stalk of wheat. Please give us, give us the strength not to be powerful zealots, decrying rulers or politicians, but faithful witnesses of your gospel, even in the face of extreme adversity. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt.